Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 111, Rebellions All the Way Down. First, I want to mention that this will be a special quarantine edition. No, no, I'm just kidding. It's a podcast. Nothing is different. I'm in quarantine as we all are, but nothing's changing. But I do have first a much larger than average set of thank yous to go out to Farut Chris, probably a guy named Chris Farut, uh, Simeon Florov, Ivailo Christov, Matthew Grace, David Hart, Lee Turner, and Plamen Enchev. Honestly, I have no idea how so many of you managed to support the show in this time of quarantine and economic uncertainty, but I really can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Um, you all are, as usual, just so, so kind of gracious, and I appreciate all the people who are reaching out to me these days. It's a nice kind of change of pace from all the dull working at home. I also wanted to mention that all this extra time for the quarantine has given me time to finally finish the first book, uh, the draft of the book on the first Bulgarian empire. I'm reaching out to publishers at the moment. So fingers crossed, maybe next year this will be published. And of course, if anyone happens to know anyone in the publishing industry who could help out or I don't know, illustrators, map creators, anything like that, you know, reach out to me. I'm sure I'll be needing to kind of gather some uh, resources there to make this book just the best quality I can make it. So getting into it. Last time, we started off with Georgi Mamarchev's failed attempt at organizing an uprising in Bulgaria against the Ottomans. This failure resulted from a misreading of the political situation, which only supported actions against the Ottomans so long as they could be tied to the mission of preserving the existing order. This also showed that by 1830, the idea of Bulgarian nationalism was still met with not very much enthusiasm from most average Bulgarians. Remember, the whole process of the national revival, you know, it really starts with elites and educated folks, but getting down to influencing the average sort of peasant farmer, that takes a lot more time. In Russian-controlled Wallachia and Moldavia, the local elite was growing in nationalism and wealth from trade, ironically there, much to Russia's chagrin. Meanwhile, Greece also became independent and immediately descended into civil war, which ended with the arrival of Otto I of Bulgaria to be the new king of Greece. The Ottoman army was growing in strength under Mahmud II's reforms, resulting in huge orders of goods from Bulgaria, which made many Bulgarians who produced these goods wealthy. But this was not enough to prevent the Egyptian army from nearly taking Constantinople, with the city only being saved with Russian support. The war finished with Egypt taking most Ottoman territory south of Anatolia and the Russians and Ottomans becoming very unlikely allies. Now, all the European powers are aligned in support of the preservation of the Ottoman state. But before we get back into all the geopolitics, there's a sad event to cover. In 1833, a fire broke out at the Rila Monastery already almost nine centuries old by now, and destroyed much of the complex. Essentially, only the central tower of Hrelia, constructed in the 14th century, survived because, well, it was a tower made of stone. 
Within a year, reconstruction began. It would continue for three decades. So today, if you visit the real monastery, and you really should, I've been more than 10 times. It's beautiful every time. Everything you see around the monastery, except for that central tower, was built during this period. So despite the monastery itself being over a millennia old, most of it is 19th century construction. You can see photos in the blog post, and there's a link in the description. So while national consciousness was still pretty slow to develop in these early days of the revival, progress was being made. 1833 saw the publication of four books in the Bulgarian language, with another two being published the next year. But while these efforts were still having little effect on the peasantry, elites and intellectuals of Bulgaria were acting. April of 1833 saw a rebellion begin around Vidin, Belgracik, and Berkoviste. The rebellion was triggered by a failure of local notables to implement an agrarian reform package recently passed by Mahmoud II. This allowed Christians to formally own land and reduce their tax burden. It was ironic because somehow Ottoman reform attempts like this angered everyone, all sides. They had actually just triggered a massive rebellion in Bosnia by landlords who were angry about government centralization and therefore a reduction of the power of those landlords and local notables. But then elsewhere, like in Belgrachikvita in this area, Rebellions were triggered when these reforms weren't effectively implemented. So essentially you have a situation where the, you know, the, the people who the reforms are supposed to help are mad that the reforms aren't being really implemented, and the people who kind of lose out in the reforms are mad that the reforms were proposed at all. So everyone's mad. So in other cases, Christians were clamoring for national states, while Muslims were concerned that the Sultan was running the empire in un-Islamic ways. As we can see, right, the, the empire is centralizing, it's becoming gradually more like other European powers in the military, in the way it's run and governed. And so a lot of these Muslims of the empire are looking at this saying, hey, you know, we don't like that you're copying the Europeans who are not Muslims, we should be a Muslim empire, da da da. And so you know, this is that irony, right? That in many ways, right, the, the Ottoman Empire wasn't that much of an Islamic empire. There were times when it definitely was, and other times when the people running the empire seemed very uninterested in, in the, the religion and at the ways in which the religion kind of played into how the empire was run and really just wanted the empire to be more European because if it was more European, it could be more effective. Uh, and again, I think, again, while this changes a lot throughout the history of the Ottoman Empire, it's important to remember that, like, I think almost any empire you can think of, it's an empire first. And the first concern in most cases of the, the people running the empire is running the empire and not implementing a kind of religious uh, set of policies or something like that. Some examples of this include when Mahmoud II actually reformed Ottoman clothing back in the 1820s. And this involved kind of adopting the fez. So that's the first time we see the introduction of this fez hat and more Western military uniforms for military officials and for the Sultan. And basically what was implied here was that the turban was basically banned. So all those images you see of Ottoman officials and Ottoman Sultans from the entire history of the empire, they're basically always wearing turbans. Now, those are gotten rid of because they're considered too kind of oriental and they, they make the empire look, uh, I guess they would consider sort of uh, backwards or something. And so the Fez was an attempt to find something a little more modern and distinctive, but still, you know, 
separating them from the Europeans. But nonetheless, this move worried many traditionalists within the empire. And it seems these rebellions were also encouraged by Serbia, who was in general looking to use regional rebellions and sort of unrest to its advantage within the Ottoman system. Remember, Serbia is not technically independent. It's mostly independent, but that was the kind of deal that Miloš Obrenović had managed to kind of get for Serbia after Karadžić failed. So in this case, though, the Serbs actually managed to use this rebellion around Vidin and Belgracic to convince the Ottomans to hand over some border territories to Serbian control. Now, the rebellion itself actually ended pretty quickly, as essentially all of them do, because hopes for Serbian or Russian assistance never really materialized. Well, because Serbia saw it would gain a lot more by helping out the Ottomans in exchange for some territories, and the Russians didn't want to upset the boat, and they wanted the Ottomans to be stronger against things like the Egyptians. Now, besides these rebellions, other things were moving very quickly in the Ottoman realm. The early 1830s also saw rapid progress in Ottoman foreign activities, with the establishment of the first permanent foreign embassies, a language and translation office, and a foreign minister to oversee it all. This, again, was part of a broader effort to kind of break the government up into ministries based on their functions, in other words, to make the Ottoman Empire more European in the way it ran and sort of governed itself. Now, this also necessitated a shift in the title and role of Grand Vizier to more of a prime minister, uh, more of a coordinator of the ministers than the original kind of sultan's right hand. You'll remember that sometimes Grand Viziers basically ran the whole empire and the sultan just hung out and read poetry or whatever the sultans would do in those cases. Whereas other times a prime minister, or the, the sorry, the Grand Vizier was more of a kind of prime minister, but now the role is really being formalized more so. Other new laws were also coming into play. In 1834, the Sublime Port published a law to organize a territorial army where each Sanjak, kind of province, would muster a 1,400-soldier battalion. They also published an order prohibiting the export of grain from northern Bulgaria, requesting 550,000 bushels of wheat for government warehouses. So obviously this is eh, probably not good for the farmers of northern Bulgaria. Yes, they have a guaranteed buyer, but they would probably get much better prices if they were selling to Western Europe, because as we've seen in Wallachia and Moldavia, I briefly mentioned it earlier, those territories there have pretty much open trade with the West, and they're getting a lot of money for that. And with that money, they're buying a lot of Western goods, and these Western goods are bringing in Western ideas, Western ways of, of living, Western styles, all these kinds of things. And so Wallachia and Moldavia are sort of Westernizing much more quickly because of this open trade, whereas the Ottomans are preventing that for northern Bulgaria. However, in 1837, the government did allow that surplus wheat to be exported, but still, it was definitely a delay in Bulgaria establishing more, kind of, let's say, stronger uh, trade connections with the West. But all these laws really just saw, in general, a strong, stronger, you could say, central Ottoman government. Meanwhile, the Egyptians were also facing setbacks in their attempts to exert greater control in their newly conquered territories. Attempts to enforce conscription and to disarm local populations in Syria triggered a series of peasant rebellions. Mahmoud II's response to 
all these kinds of setbacks to his reforms, though, in general, was to push even harder for more reforms. Again, he's seen so many of his predecessors really take a step back and, and roll back reforms when they face pushback, and he's determined not to do that. In 1834, he abolished rules which allowed local officials to collect arbitrary taxes, instead moving the function to local councils of officials. Now, obviously, this was designed to prevent the rampant abuse of powers by tax collectors. And on that note, the Sultan wrote, quote, I am bound to afford support to all my subjects against vexatious proceedings, to endeavor unceasingly to lighten instead of increasing their burdens, and to ensure peace and tranquility. Therefore, those acts of oppression are at once contrary to the will of God and to my imperial orders. End quote. So it's an interesting you know, statement there. He, he's really saying that it's his duty to kind of help his people and that anyone who is opposing him in doing this is going against the will of God. Now, this is obviously an attempt, a, a sort of strikeout at the conservative forces who, you know, I don't know if they're quite the same folks, but they're aligned with the Islamic conservatives who want to oppose reform because they see it as making the Ottoman Empire less Islamic. And those forces that want to oppose uh, these reforms because it's taking away their power. So he's kind of, you know, the Sultan's lumping them together and saying, you know, all of you are, you know, acting not just against me, but against God. And so if you are true Muslims, or I guess you could consider maybe any religion, you have to support my reforms. Now, again, this points to a more general element of Ottoman governance, which is worth mentioning. Now, while many point to the abusive actions of local officials as being part of Ottoman government policy, most of the time the central government was actively trying really hard to prevent those occurrences because it really did benefit the government, right? These are tax farmers. They're paying the government a set amount. So all the abusive practices where the tax farmers are raising even more money, none of that goes to the government. The government gets a set amount, and so that's only benefiting the tax collectors. But it's bad for the government because it's making the whole empire poorer and more violent and, you know, increasing unrest. And so the Ottoman central government really does not want these abusive tax practices. And, you know, we're seeing the sultan be very clear about that. But Mahmoud II wasn't the only one attempting to reform or really facing rebellions. In 1835, the Serbian prince Miloš Obrenović was actually forced to adopt a relatively liberal constitution following his own rebellion. That constitution abolished serfdom, granted freedom of speech and the press, and reduced the power of Obrenovic himself. However, the move was immediately opposed by Austria and Russia because of its liberalism, and by the Ottomans because it exerted further autonomy. Now, the Ottomans, it's clear why, but remember, Austria and Russia at this period in history are deeply conservative. They are all, everyone is paranoid about the French Revolution. It's been decades, but still, the last thing anyone wants is a French Revolution. And they see any, you know, kind of flowering of liberal ideas as being a potential source of a new revolution, and they intend to squash it. As a result, the new constitution, a new new constitution rather, was forced on Serbia in 1838 by all of these powers together. It was less liberal and re-emphasized that Serbia was still under Ottoman suzerainty. These constitutional fights, though, 
did manage to reduce the power of Obrenovich, who stopped acting as supreme as a supreme judicial authority in the country and gave up the state monopoly on salt trading, which is one of the many ways Obrenovich managed to get exorbitantly wealthy as Prince of Serbia. In Bulgaria, though, uprisings were also going on, although they weren't about to trigger anything like constitution or uh, a reduction in executive power. This time, it was Georgi Mamarchev again. The former Russian officer who led a failed uprising six years earlier was now helping to organize the Welch plot, along with wealthy merchant Velcho Atanasov and many others from towns like Elena, Gorna Oryakhovica, Lyaskovets, Tryavna, and Gabrovo, mostly in the central part of Bulgaria. Their plan was to initiate an uprising on Easter of 1835 under the pretense that they were gathering men to repair a fortress at Varna which was damaged in the last war with Russia. However, these 2,000 or so men engaged in drills and exercises to prepare themselves for the fighting to come. Their plan was to quickly take Turnovo and proclaim Velcho Atanasov Knyaz of Bulgaria before establishing a state centered around the Balkan mountains which would then aim to eventually control all of Bulgarian lands. However, the plot was betrayed by a wealthy man from Elena named Jordan Kisyov, a participant of several previous plots who decided to turn against his fellow conspirators now. A meeting by the group at the Plyakovo Monastery north of the Balkan Mountains was surrounded by Ottoman troops and a bloody battle ensued. Some escaped, but most of the participants were captured. These captured men were brutally tortured, and most were shortly afterwards executed. Once again, this plot believed very sincerely that Russian assistance would come. However, as Russia was an Ottoman ally and strictly opposed to such revolutionary activity, it actually aided the Ottomans in hunting down the participants. Georgi Mamarchev was himself captured, but avoided death because he was a Russian citizen. Instead, he was imprisoned in Anatolia, and later on a Greek island where he would eventually die. Still, 1835 did see some positive developments in Bulgaria. Vasil Aprilov opened the first modern school in Bulgaria in the town of Gabrovo, choosing Neofit Rilski as a teacher. Aprilov was from Gabrovo but had studied in Moscow and become a committed advocate of a Bulgarian national revival after having participated in the early Greek revolutionary movement in Odessa. Neofit Rilski was a teacher and a monk from Bansko. He had worked and studied in the Rila Monastery, Melnik, and Samokov before taking this position. The same year he began teaching in Gabrovo, he also published his Bulgarska Grammatica. This was the first grammar book in the modern Bulgarian language. So, you know, as we know, Bulgarian was obviously a language at this point, but there were lots of little dialects, as there kind of are today, and there was no single standardized form. The closest standard form Bulgarian would have been Old Church Slavonic, which, as you can imagine, was very old by now. So it's as if saying, okay, there's lots of different forms of English, there's no standard form that sort of everyone can understand, and the closest we have is, say, Shakespearean English. It's not, not that useful, unless you're very educated. Um, also that same year, Rilski began work on a translation of the New Testament into modern Bulgarian, Interestingly enough, with the help of an American missionary from New Jersey named Elias Riggs. Elsewhere in Bulgaria, 1835 also saw the opening of the country's first modern textile factory in Sleven. 
the man behind the factory, Dobry Zhelyaskov, didn't have enough capital to start it on his own, and so he got funding and tax breaks from the Ottoman administration. Machines were imported from Russia, Britain, and Belgium, and within a few years, the factory would employ three to 400 women from all backgrounds, Christians, Muslims, Romani, and Bulgarians alike, making up to 50,000 meters of cloth a day, and this is why the Ottoman government was willing to step in, most of that cloth went to the Ottoman army. As 1835 turns to 1836, though, Bulgaria is seeing more and more failed rebellions alongside cultural advancements that will one day help to build a new state. But first, fighting would need to occur. May of 1836 saw a rebellion in Berkovica start with Petr Stoyanov and Manchopun. Similar to previous ones, this rebellion was caused by local authorities refusing to implement agrarian reform, and, like previous ones, it was quickly crushed. A few weeks later, another rebellion broke out in Pirot. This was triggered both by abusive practices on the part of the town's Ottoman governor and of its Greek bishop. Because Pirot had participated in the Serbian rebellion, many of its citizens were now living in Serbia and helped organize this rebellion from across the border. However, again, there was hope that the Serbian government would assist. Obrenovich actually attempted to quell the situation by negotiating with the Ottomans to have the leadership in Pirot changed. However, fighting soon broke out and the local Ottoman soldiers retreated into Pirot fortress. Obrenovich wrote in a letter, quote, We say this because that Pirot turmoil is very dangerous, because all of Bosnia is again in motion and the fire has spread even to Novi Pazar. God forbid that it erupts from Pirot. It may even combine with the Bosnian Rebellion and Albanian Rebellion from Pazar. And it would be a great evil which we do not know who would manage to silence. End quote. So again, you know, you're wondering why was Obrenovic so scared of all these rebellions? Well, it's because he had worked with the Ottoman Empire to gain his position. All of his wealth, his power, everything he's gained has been in cooperation with the Ottomans. And so he's not interested in Ottoman power diminishing because he still sees Serbia as being in a position where it can gradually make gains as the Ottomans give more concessions, as the Ottomans get weaker. So it seems his strategy is to see Ottoman power gradually diminish. And so he can be in a position to kind of take advantage little by little. Overall, I mean, Obrenovic was practical, and he was willing to do what he felt was needed to grow Serbian power, really regardless of what that meant in terms of supporting or not supporting other people being oppressed by the Ottomans. By June, a new local leader was appointed, and the fighting died down in Pirot, only to erupt again in August, and this was again put down with Serbian assistance. Now, overall, Obrenovic had two aims here. The first was to clearly demonstrate his loyalty to the Ottomans with the hope that this would allow him to gain further concessions. Next, he hoped that by helping to put down rebellions, the Ottomans would give him control over those territories in order to help maintain order, thereby growing his power and influence. In this case, the result was that Pirot got the new leadership it wanted and did not face heavy reprisals, showing that Obrenovich's approach was getting him results. Around that same time, in August of 1836, another revolt in Belgracic broke out and lasted a few days before being put down. 
As mentioned in Obanovich's letter, there were also rebellions in Bosnia and Albania throughout the year. The rebellions in Albania largely revolved around taxation. Officials were upset that the old order that they were used to was being changed, while the one in Bosnia was led by Orthodox priests who were pro-Serbian in nature. Now, while the Bosnian revolt didn't last very long, further Albanian rebellions would go on for the remainder of the 1830s. Now, the next year saw yet another uprising in northwestern Bulgaria, this time in Ciprozzi, which, you'll remember, had seen a major Ottoman rebellion, actually severals, uh, during the Ottoman period, partly owing to its Catholic population. Around 1,800 to 2,000 men were involved under the leadership of Vrban Panov, Incho Andreev, and Krusio Neshen. This rebellion was also triggered by heavy taxation and poor governance. However, it was crushed quickly. Some of the rebels escaped to Serbia while the rest were executed. Still, while there were some positive signs for the Balkans, at the end of 1836, the Ottomans signed a new trade treaty with France, creating better conditions for economic development between the Balkan provinces and France, which was definitely going to help Bulgarian merchants and manufacturers. But Mahmoud continued his centralization of power regardless of what his rebellious subjects had to say. In 1837 and 1838, he attempted to reduce the abuse of Balkan Christians, and one local official wrote in response to peasants being forced to work on Sunday, quote, The Raya have hitherto sufficiently suffered. It is the will of the Sultan that they should be protected and allowed the full enjoyment of their religion. End quote. So, an interesting statement there, right? That the, the Christian population of the Balkans, they've suffered enough, and the Sultan should help them enjoy the full sort of protection of their religion. But, you know, again, I think a lot of people who learn the traditional history of the Ottoman Empire in Bulgaria would be confused by this. But again, think of the Ottoman government's position. You know, if if their local officials are really persecuting Christians that badly, that's just increasing the likelihood that taxes won't be collected. It's increasing the likelihood that rebellions are going to happen. And the central Ottoman government wants none of this. This is all just a giant headache for them. And so it's in their interest to make sure that the Christian population is happy. However, whether or not they can do this is the, the bigger question. Now, also to help combat corruption, Mahmoud implemented fixed salaries and shifted legislative authority away to a series of councils with the understanding that governing the empire was now really too complex for the existing officials to handle. Remember, the way the Ottoman Empire had been governed was fairly distributed and, and sort of a lot of authority was given up to locals. And as we know, for centuries, that's been leading to terrible abuses of local populations. And so the government is trying to pull back on that. But again, the question is really whether the Ottomans have the ability to reinforce this. Overall, though, little by little, the Ottoman Empire was transforming itself under Mahmoud's guidance, and despite all the rebellions, the reforms were ongoing. However, Mahmoud was also a bit overconfident when it came to his military reforms. And, well, that's about to play out when he challenges Egypt. Because back in 1834, Egypt and the Ottomans had nearly gone to war over Egypt's refusal to pay tribute. But the European powers had held Mahmoud back, not wanting to rock the boat in a geopolitical balance which suited them. But by 1838, tensions flared up again as Ali threatened to declare himself an independent monarch. Historian Donald Quaitert summarizes what happened. Quote, 
the Ottomans attacked his forces in Syria, but were crushed and again rescued. This time by a coalition of Britain, Austria, Prussia, and Russia, but not France. These powers stripped Muhammad Ali of all his gains, Crete and Syria, as well as the holy cities of Mecca and Medina, leaving him only hereditary control of Egypt as compensation. The lesson seemed clear. The Western powers were unwilling to permit the emergence of a dynamic and powerful Egyptian state that had threatened Ottoman stability and the international balance of power. Although he may have had the power to do so, Muhammad Ali did not become master of the Middle East, in significant measure because the European states would not allow it. End quote. Again, all of Mahmoud's reforms still left him far behind Muhammad Ali, who had been engaging in many of the same reforms, but with about a decade head start. But the Ottomans were time and time again lucky to benefit from European geopolitics. Unfortunately for Mahmoud, though, his own time had run out. Just before learning of the disastrous losses to the Egyptians in the war, the Sultan succumbed to tuberculosis. In his 31 years on the throne, Mahmoud had done what his predecessors had repeatedly failed to do, enact substantial reforms. Shaw delves into how he was able to do this when his brother Selim had failed, stating, quote, What made Mahmoud II different from Selim III? They had been raised together. They had received the same traditional palace education, spiced with occasional information about the outside world, and it had little opportunity to gain the practical experience needed to transform their ideas into reality. But Mahmoud witnessed the results of Salim's weakness and indecision. He had also seen how successful even the limited reforms instituted by the Nizam-e-Chadith program had been. Early in his reign, Mahmoud seems to have realized that, one, reforms to be successful had to encompass the entire scope of Ottoman institutions and society, not only a few elements in the military. Two, the only way that reformed institutions could operate was through the destruction of the ones that they were replacing, so that the latter could not hinder their operation. And three, the reforms had to be carefully planned and support assured before they were attempted. These considerations emerge as the backbone of Mahmoud's reform policies in subsequent years. End quote. Mahmoud's reforms indeed had been profound. He had eliminated the Janissaries, established a European-style army, helped curb corruption, completely reorganized Ottoman governance, conducted a census of the empire minus Egypt. And throughout all these reforms, he signaled that the Ottomans would look to the West for inspiration. Shaw writes, quote, Mahmoud II's reign brought not merely an awareness of and admiration for the West, but also a feeling that the traditional Ottoman ways had to be abandoned for the empire to survive and to hold its own against a technologically superior Europe. The Ottomans could no longer afford to look down on the West, and gradually change permeated different areas of their lives, from wearing apparel to language, thought, and even entertainment. Mahmoud himself took the lead, transferring his abode in 1815 from the ancient Topkapı Palace at the heights of Old Istanbul to a more modern palace built along the Bosphorus at Dolmanbache. Into the palace went western sofas, tables, and chairs, replacing the pillows and divans of the old palace. Mahmoud began to dress like a European monarch, shortening his beard and wearing his own version of contemporary western hats, frock coats, and trousers. 
In place of the splendid isolation of his predecessors, even Selim III crept around the streets in Istanbul incognito, he appeared in public, often riding European-style carriages. Sometimes he went into the provinces to investigate conditions. He was the first sultan to attend public receptions, concerts, operas, and ballet performances given in some of the Western embassies, and with Donizetti's, he helped he imported Western musicians and developed the Hassa musicians into a Western-style military band so that he could offer concerts to his European guests. End quote. There's a lot of quotes, but I felt they really did a good job of kind of summing up Mahmoud II and all the various reforms he made. But as regards to Bulgaria, his legacy is, well, it's a very interesting one. On the one hand, many of his reforms certainly helped Bulgarians. Right? He's trying to reduce the abuses against Bulgarians. He's opening up economic markets so that more Bulgarians can become wealthy and sort of have a good quality of life. But on the other hand, he's building a new Western-style army, which is being used to put down re- Bulgarian rebellions. So, you know, we're going to talk about this more as we cover uh, reforms as they go on, but they do have a very interesting kind of relationship with the Bulgarian people. Now, with Mahmoud's death, the question hanging in the air was whether his 16-year-old son and successor, Abdul Majid I, would be able to continue his reforms, or whether rebellions, conservative backlash, and European meddling would make this impossible. Well, you're going to have to listen next time to find out. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast, which is kind of on hold right now because I can't meet Georgi to record them. But still, there's a few episodes up there if you know someone who would enjoy them. Like, subscribe, check us out on Facebook, all that good stuff. You know what to do. And most of all, stay safe.